0: Welcome to She Brigade, the podcast. I am your host, Billund On this podcast, we bring you amazing trailblazing women to come and share their life and career journeys with you. From entrepreneurs to to ers join us as each guest takes you through all of the highs and all of the lows of their journeys that have led them to being who they are today. Hello, Brigade, and welcome to not just another... The final episode of the season. It's been an amazing season, and I'm also sad to see it end. But the end just means a brand new season will come soon enough, and we'll continue giving you amazing black females that are really just changing the world. This week is special in South Africa because the 16th of June is this week, which is Youth Day. This day commemorates the events of 1976 where the youth in South Africa grows and protested the system of banned education, which ultimately led to many people, especially young people, losing their lives. So today's episode is actually quite fitting. As we talk to Zuleika Patel, who was part of a movement in 2016 at the age of 13 against systemic racism in schools in South Africa. This movement led to global conversation and local change. Now, five years later, Zuleika shares... How the movement came to be, the impact it's had on her, had on her being a young activist, as well as a radical self-love. She also shares about her new book, My Coily Crowny Hair, which she wrote for young black girls. Tune in to hear all about her story. So let's dive in. Hey Zuleika, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Bilal. I'm, I'm so excited to get into this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I was first, oh, before I get to when I was first introduced to you, or when most of us were, actually, I just remembered that um, I was at the last event that I went to before COVID hit and before the, the pandemic shut everything down. You actually spoke at Chili's Africa.
1: Yes, Slave Fest.
0: Yes, yes. 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 You spoke at that event. That's the last event that I went to, like big event. Yeah, before the world pretty much shut down. So, yeah, that's just the nice memory that I thought of now. But also, you know, with you being um, who you are and what, with what you've done, I can actually recall my first experience of you. And just to quickly tell you about it, I was, it was my first year working in corporate at a bank. And I, ha- I was a braided girl a lot, so I braided my hair mostly. I woke up that week and I just decided, no, I'm gonna have my natural, I have an afro under under my wig. Okay. <laughs> so I just decided to just take my natural hair, um, um, to to wear my natural hair to work that week. And it just happened to be the same week that um you you your, your protest was taking place. So it was so interesting for me because I went natural because of, it wasn't really by choice. My hair was like just not coping with, real, like, like that stuff doesn't work on my hair. It literally like my hair will, will fall off. So I, I, it was not by choice when I went natural, but obviously I love it now. So when I went to work that week, it was fascinating because now everyone at work was like, oh, Bello, tell us, tell us about your experience. What did you go through? Oh, and I'm like, whoa, okay, everybody hold on. You know, it was just a very odd experience. And now all of a sudden, like everybody was just, they were, touching my hair, doing this, asking me 20 million Mm -hmm. questions. And I can't imagine what you went through. But anyway, we'll get to that. Um, I just wanted to share that experience. That was my first exposure to you. And you actually changed my life too, because from that moment on, I more deliberately started wearing my hair out um, because I was like, clearly they're shocked because they're not used to it. And I was like, why aren't they used to it? So I started Mm -hmm. doing that more deliberately. And that's just the impact that you had on me. In my first year of corporate <laughs> so yeah anyway back to the podcast so on this podcast <laughs> we, <laughs> we like to start all the way from the beginning so I want you to take us all the way back tell us give us a peek into what you what it was like for you growing up I know that you're still young but I mean you've grown up and you've gone through <laughs> more experiences than most of us go through but take us through take take us all the way back all the way back and let us know what it was like for you growing up, what kind of a kid you were, you know, all of that.
1: I'll take you back to what I can remember. I think it would be difficult for me to take you back to 2002, the year I was born. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll take you back to um, what I can recall. So um, my upbringing really had a lot to do with the person that I am today. Um, Growing up, I was a very timid quiet and shy kid and when I say shy oh I was petrified of speaking I would never like I'd never speak I would only speak with people I'm comfortable with and the people I'm comfortable with were at home so whenever I was like in school in class anything I was quiet I was never heard I was only seen and because mm. i would never heard I was never seen I was always just that one kid whereby you only heard the only time you heard me was you'd hear a very, very, very low voice say, I'm present, and that mm. was it. You never heard me ever, ever. I remember people even used to question like, is she here? Was she absent that day? Like that's just how quiet I was, right? Wow. And I'll tell you why I was that quiet. Um so I grew up, um, I was never actually, never actually taught to be shy or conditioned to be shy or not to speak i mean both my parents were very outspoken people like very very outspoken and there would be people whereby they would if you're not talking they would ask you why aren't you talking is there something wrong right um so when i was growing up i started reading at the age of four um and I was encouraged to read like when I, when I got curious in terms of reading, when I'd start reading just labels on things in the house and I'd pick up words and, um, I was getting stronger in the reading. Like I could read like one sentence or two or three. Now, um, my dad, who's like my number one inspiration, like literally the person that I want to become um, literally nurtured my love for reading. Like, um, I grew up in a household where there was a culture of reading mm-hmm. um, every day in the morning, the newspaper was bought and every day, Monday to Sunday on Sunday, it was the Sunday times On Monday morning. It was Pretoria news, Tuesday morning, the star Wednesday, and then we'd go back to Pretoria news and oh, then wow. on Sunday on Friday would actually get daily sun. Um- <laughs> yeah. Sh- shake things up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I was encouraged to read. I mean, mm-hmm. like when I got stronger in the reading, my dad would actually like hand me the newspaper and say, read the, read the headline article. And um, I would basically essentially have like a reading, a, a, an unprepared reading almost every morning. So when I got to primary school, I think that what really made me shy was the fact that um, for a very long time, because I, I... I was exposed to um, racial, racial discrimination, prejudice from the time I was born. It was something I was very aware of as a child. I was never, I was never, I was never really, um, I never really was conditioned to believe that we're a free nation because I I understood discrimination because it was what my daily life was like, right? Growing up in an interfaith, in an interfaith background and an interracial background where both my parents essentially um both my parents are um are black people but of different um different cultural ethnic groups right Mm. um there's my mother who's in Debele and then there's my father who's Indian and isn't from South Africa and is Muslim and then there's Mm. my mother's side which is which is Christian right and so I navigated a childhood whereby from my toddlerhood I was exposed to um discrimination in its most uncomfortable forms right um whether be it people pulling my hair and um whether it would be from the one side where because i i grew up with my father and my mother's family right and so um i, I could never say i ever really um formed a relationship with my my father's side right and the few that i did i had my experiences of discrimination there whether it be it my hair being pulled or yeah. my looks being questioned you know like my nose, not mm. being pointy, my lips, you know, and so, and so I I got very, I think it really fueled shyness in me, because I always felt like I was not, I wasn't worthy, and so I always, I always said to myself as a child, there's no reason to speak at all, you know, and so I became that kid where I spoke when I'm spoken to, spoke, speak when I'm questioned, and, only answer when I'm questioned. Otherwise, I would never speak at all. And um, when I got to primary school, and this this kind of began. I think this is where my story actually really begins to um to to unfold. Because when I got to primary school, so I I from the time I was in grade one, I went to historically historically white and historically model c institutions right and so i remember my first primary school a predominantly predominantly white school right in pretoria Mm -hmm. and i i remember walking in and i remember i had an experience of racism on the first very first day right very Mm. first day i was the one kid that could write their name and i was able to read right and i remember I remember my teacher looking at me and saying to me, usually people like you aren't, 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 um, aren't developed that far at this age. And so the way I had perceived that as a child, because as a child at the time when I was six, I literally, I understood because it was something I constantly heard. I mm. understood what was the connotation to someone saying you people. Right. So I, I, I yeah, so it, it was a very it was a background where I, I understood discrimination very early, and I think that's where I I also began to um, really also develop this this um, this deep this deep 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 desire to want to bring about change because I remember growing up number one growing up, up in a growing up in a political household because my father played a role in. Um, in the liberation struggle and was quite, quite a political mind, right? And so I remember at home, I was exposed to politics from a very early age. And I think mm. from the time I was able to speak, I literally could take, I took part in those discussions, right, at the dinner table. And so I understood the dynamics of our country at a very early age. And because of that, and along with what I was experiencing directly, I... Developed this desire that I knew that you know something has to change, and I always used to say that this country has to change. There's no way that this is the destination that that um, that has been fought for, and we are mm-hmm. we are at the destination which we speak of and we're at that destination of freedom there's no possible way that this is the destination and we're just going to be parked here it there's no possible way that this is just it because (coughs) there's still so much that has to change and so I remember one of the first things that really made me break out of shyness was um, my dad signed me up for under the Pretoria English Society and basically it was where all the schools in Pretoria would take part in um, a speech festival where you could do a reading or you could recite poetry in front of a board of adjudicators as well as um, all the competing schools, right? Mm-hmm. And this was not to my knowledge at all. I I only found <laughs> out the day before. No and, I was, <laughs> and I was told you're going to recite a poem on Thursday and um and I think the first time I recited a poem in front of a room of about um forty five people as a very, very shy kid with a very high pitched voice, I literally I think that's when um, that's when I started to sort of want to break out of out of out of my shell of shyness because when, when I saw the reaction in people's faces, it made me feel like. I was something, right? And it Mm. made me feel like something valuable could come out of me. And I think that that feeling of something valuable could come out of me also became the driving force of me wanting to be a change maker. And so um, throughout primary, um, I, yeah, I I had a really tough time as well because I was one of the kids that always got um, bullied because I was tiny had a high-pitched voice. So I was a really easy, easy target for mm. um, being made fun of. Um, and also I was quite the nerd. So um, I was always the person reading. There was always a book in front of my face. <laughs> so it was quite an easy target. Mm. And um, I got to a point where um, it just got to me. The bullying got to me. So I did also have a phase of straightened hair. Thinking about grade four, five and early grade six. I had straightened hair, then, I don't know, I just got to a turning point when I was in grade six. And that's when, that's also when you're about to enter adolescent years. And so you do experience like emotional changes, you know, yeah, the so, shift in you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think when I like mid grade six, I just wasn't satisfied with looking at myself and looking at an altered version of myself. And I remember saying that um, how I look right now isn't necessarily me. It's altered. And I don't want that anymore. I want to look the way I'm supposed to look, the, the look the way I was born to look. So I went natural again. I cut my hair again. And I think that's when that shell of shyness completely broke off. Mm. And I went from being one of the most unnoticed people and one of the most made fun of people to being the center of attention, and the main speaker. And so I think that change also, um, it also made me speak up for myself more because um, I never really spoke up every time I dealt with outbursts of racism. I never really spoke up. And I think um, me just simply, simply going natural, it also, it sort of made me, made me feel like there was more to this and it made me feel like this was just beyond hair. this was mm. a reaffirmation of my identity and who I am and so if I'm if I'm existing in my in my true state why should I exist silently you know and so then I began also to speak up for myself and I remember I used to actually contest educators every time they would they would make racist remarks and I would speak up until I actually became branded and known as someone that was outspoken mm. and um, that that marked the that was a very massive change which marked the end of primary school and I exited primary school a very confident very confident person as well as a um, a very very outspoken person and unapologetic in my identity after like six years of shyness (laughs) so when I got to high school um, I think everything in me like I knew that there was no ways I was going to exist silently Mm -hmm. whether be it I knew that number one all my childhood teachings from just even the the um, the background in reading and the political background I knew that I was going to take all of that into me to form an identity and I knew that I was not going to exist silently so when I got to high school um, an all-girls school um, not necessarily predominantly white however the leadership being predominantly white and the staff body being predominantly white and it still upholding Still upholding traditions, traditions of a um, past which was exclusionary in the institution. So I found myself confronting confronting racism directly in its harshest form. Um, I remember saying I was literally in the furnace, the hot pit of of white supremacy, and I was like, and I'm literally burning, and everyone around me can see it, and people are aware of this and there's, and there's not a single person who's oblivious to it. And it cannot be that this is normalized and it cannot be that this is our reality. And this is our reality as a country that is, that is branded as free and as Mm -hmm. a youth that are, that are, are are forcefully fed this, this identity of freedom. And we're forcefully, we find ourselves forcefully having to embrace it. This cannot be our reality. And I remember, um, among many, many, many outbursts and many, many traumatic, traumatic um, experiences, I think the biggest one that completely, completely changed and switched things up where I literally said that there's no ways I'm going to keep quiet and I'm determined to bring about change because the country has to change and it will change. Mm. So I remember in May, 2016, I was called in by an educator, one of the um, she she was one of the heads of a department, right? And she called me into her office on my own. Uh, first question she asked me, she said to me, "There's usually an Indian man that comes to pick you up. Is that your biological father?" And I answered her, and I was like, "Why would that not be my biological father? Why are you asking me that? Why, why are you concerned about that?" And she said. No, we just, I'm just asking because it doesn't seem like it. And I asked her why doesn't it seem like it. And she went on to tell me, well, compared to him, your hair is be your hair grows out exotically compared to his. And I asked her, I was like, what do you mean by exotic? Can you unpack that for me? Because I'm, I, I want to understand what you mean. And she Went on to ask me to take a seat in her office, and so I took a seat. And she told me that um, she told me that my afro has grown past its limit, and it looks oddly exotic, and it's not the girl's highway, nor is it, nor is it a, nor is it ladylike, right? And she went on to tell me that um, I have to do something about it because I don't have a choice because if I ought to fit in, I cannot, I cannot look as exotic as I look. And so I told her that exotic is a term that I reserve for animals and not human beings. And she told me that in her world, exotic is reserved for the other, which is not the normal way as Mm. the norm, which is not the norm. Exotic is reserved for what is not the norm. And she told me that, um, And she told me that she's questioning a lot around my identity. And she went on to open her cupboard and take out a pencil and she stuck it in my hair and it didn't move, didn't move at all. And she went on to tell me, I think you're going to have to censor this because this is a very, very derogatory term. She went on to tell me that I have Rechter Kaferara and I remember walking out of that office, feeling like, feeling like someone had just, had just exercised superiority over my identity and my entire being and existence. And I remember being so shattered that I was like, "There's no ways I've just experienced something like this. Something that my parents' generation went under." The I pencil tears. Think- like I was completely like I was gobsmacked I was like how in 2016 22 years into democracy how you know and I remember being so shattered and I cried my eyes out and I literally uh, the following day I was like there's no ways things are going to change things are definitely going to change and I remember then um, speaking to schoolmates of mine, which were all, this is a very important part that I, I need to mention because it, it it ties in a lot with my story, right? Mm. So they were all older than me. These were all the grade 11s and the metrics, right? And what happened was they grew fond of me because I was outspoken and because I understood the issues and the mm. system itself, right? And so they grew fond of me. And so I went on to tell them about what happened to me, right? And everyone was devastated and in a sense whereby we weren't devastated because everyone pitied that that had to happen to me, but we were devastated at the fact that this cannot be, that this has been the reality of everyone who's come before us and it's going to be the reality of everyone that is going to come after us. And if not now, then when are things going to change? We can't continue to say that things are going to change whilst there's a slow there's a slow progress and things are not changing right and so we went on to say that things are going to change and at the time we didn't have an answer as to how things are going yeah. to change but we were yet to find it so over the next month next two months things intensified where we we're not getting threats and we were, to- we we're being told that you won't write exams if you do not do something about your hair or um we were even further told that Afros and dreadlocks are pro- prohibited on the property of girl type. So it got and worse. We had got, it got more intense and where you would even face disciplinary action for speaking in an African language. Right. And you would face disciplinary action for talking about racism, whereby you had to be silent and, and you had to silence yourself essentially. So I remember August came, August came and, um, this was also the peak of um, famus fall at the time and so mm-hmm. for me on a personal level i witnessed young people bringing about a necessary change in the country and that sparked something in me that made me feel as though i as a young person have a role in this generation and in this time right now to do something because freedom isn't a destination it's it's a it's a continuous it's a continuous um, it's a continuous path. Right. And so, and so it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing thing and it's not necessarily a destination. And even if it were a destination, we haven't arrived yet. And so, um, I remember seeing, seeing, um, seeing the female leaders of FISMUS 4 and I remember being, being so deeply inspired that on a personal level, I was like, there's no ways I'm going to be silent in, An institution which is at war with my identity and at war with Blackness. And this isn't necessarily for myself, but it's for everyone that would come after me. So I remember going up to one specific metric that proved very, very fond of me. And I said to her, look, we have to do something. And now, urgently, because we're at war, a war is being waged on our blackness and we can't afford to sit and keep quiet. So I remember that's when the planning began. And we said, the only way to do this is through a protest, right? Mm -hmm. And so we said, we're protesting because we're unable to breathe under the conditions which we are subjected to. And so we um, planned a protest for the 26th of August to dress in all black, to dress in all black which would symbolize our resistance because for us um, for us all for us all black all black symbolized resistance for us and so we plan to dress in all black and we would start a silent demonstration on a friday where we had a service day because prior to the prior to that um, saturday there was going to be an event at the school right um, spring Fair, which is an event which is popularly known in Pretoria, which is hosted by the school. Okay, well, before COVID, it was always hosted, and it celebrates the entrance of spring, and basically the entire Pretoria is invited. And so, the 26th of August came, and there was something in me that just wouldn't, just wouldn't burn down, and I just can't explain it and put my words on it. But it was as if there was a fire that was not being put out and it was just burning and it was hot hey and so I remember walking in and all of us as black girls were dressed in all black and we had head wraps on and you know we even accessorized with traditional accessories and I remember us saying the notion of the day is that we're even we're even going to um going to defy simple simple rules rules such mm. as Oh, you can't have your Afro out, you can't have your dreadlocks out, and you can't speak, you can't speak in any language other than English and Afrikaans, or you as black girls can't can't convene in groups of more than more than three. And so cause that was a rule as well, because we would be accused of conspiracy when we were in groups Yo. of more. So I remember we said we'd be in large groups and we would speak in our African languages and we would be ourselves and we would be who we're supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. And so and so honestly, that moment, that moment was a beginning. It was a it was the, the foundation of something that was much more significant than me, just as Zuleika Patel and just as us. At the time, the girls, high girls, it was something, it was the beginning of something much more significant and much more greater than just us as as, um, girls at the time. And so I remember the response that we got led to the following protest, right, on the following day. So on the day, what happened was in the morning on the assembly, we had one of our headmistresses stand on the balcony and count us one by one, all the people that were wearing that we were demonstrating on the day, and yeah. she was looking down and counting us, and it, in a sense, felt like we were being counted in such an inferior way, and we were being—it felt like we were being criminalized as well. Yeah, we were being, we were being as girls that are minors. We were being rendered to criminality because of the way we were being counted. And um, we did not know what that counting meant. And what that counting meant was that we would be called in for individual meetings one by one to intimidate us one by one by one and that also meant that they hired more security guards on the day because we as black girls had a relate because there was such, so few black employees we had relationships with them because mm. these are the people that would protect us who we viewed in the locus parental view because at the time we were like there's no possible way we could view those that harm us in a parental yeah. in a parental life so we viewed our black the black, the black staff members as, as our parents, right? And so we knew exactly who our security is. And so anytime there was someone new, we knew exactly that that person was new. And so we saw how many new male security guards there were and how they tailed us and how, because I remember the group that I sat in, we were tailed up until the end of the school day um, because... Because that group basically, essentially the people that were the most outspoken, myself and among many other girls were in that group. And so we were tailed the whole entire afternoon. And so we said to ourselves that there's no possible way that this is the response. Such such indirect violence is being perpetuated. Yeah. So we said that the following day we have to we have to march. We have to, we have to. This it can't end here, yeah, it can't. So the following day we planned. We'd march at 12 o'clock, we'd be silent. I would be silent. And our defiance on the day was wearing badges that were yellow that said, hi, don't be racist, right? And um, some people even wore badges of how to pronounce their name, like the phonetic pronunciation yes. of their name, you know? Um, I remember having one saying, it's not, it's not. Um, and so I basically spelled out how my name would be pronounced and butchered. It's not Zuleika or Zulega it's Zuleika. And I had it in the okay. phonetic, um, pre- in the, you know, breaking it up yeah. into into, um, into little syllables, right? And so um, I remember us on the day, it was even a very hostile day. Like um, we were we were being guarded, we have being watched, like we are placed under surveillance, right? And it was all the people that were outspoken and I was one of them. And um, at the time, we didn't even know that, we were doing something that would later become something so deeply significant to Blackness in mm. the post, post-apartheid post democratic era in the education arena, right? So I remember 12 o'clock came, 12 o'clock came and we met up at the meeting point. And at the meeting point, um, there was a security guard who was armed with a gun and with a dog. And um, essentially they'd known that we were doing something and we were up to something. And so the meeting point, there was a gate and deliberately so that gate got locked, right? And so what we did was we were very smart in speaking to uh, members of the public who were um, who were there at the event and we would tell them what the situation is and we deliberately chose young people. And so a lot of people already We had them on our side. And yeah. so when that gate was locked it became very, very fishy to, and strange to members of the public as to why is a gate being locked in a public event? Open up the gate. And so there was pressure from the public for them to open up the gate. And so they opened up the gate. And I remember one of the security guards saying to us that we're breaking a city council code. And for the first time in my life, I spoke without any any fear or there wasn't shaking, my voice wasn't shaking for the first time in my life. And I asked him, and I was like, "Can you quote that 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 law for me from this? Your, can you quote it for me? Because according to us, we know the Constitution. We're not just protesting without knowing the Constitution. We know that constitutionally, as citizens that are unhappy, we have the right to protest, right? And so um, that was the first time, and for me, that was on a personal level a very big turning point because that was the first time in my life I spoke without." without stumbling on my words because mm. of how terrified I'd be to speak. And that was the first time there was no shaking in my voice. And he couldn't answer me. And so we proceeded with the march. And when we got to, um, when we got to our, our standing point, we were confronted by a high-risk high risk security team. And these were the heads of the high-risk security team. And so for already for an event that is in a school, a high-risk security team com- consisting of security that is all-male, all-male, right, mm. is all-male, white-run, is armed with guns, is armed with dogs as well. That was the first time in my life I think I saw a gun that big in my entire life. I'd never witnessed a gun that big. And um, and so I remember, remember even saying to myself that this cannot be this cannot be. This isn't. This isn't what it should be. So when they confronted us, they asked us what we're doing, right? And we said that we're unhappy with the conditions which we're subjected to, and we're demanding a change. We're demanding a change on a on a on a um, on a policy level as well as a change on a on a systemic level. Within the traditions that uphold that uphold the institution. We're demanding a change and we're demanding for those to be more representative of Africanness and blackness and more inclusive of that. And uh, we stated what we're demanding. We're like, we're demanding, we're demanding an end to the racist hair policy. We're demanding an end to a policy that states that we can't speak in our mother tongues because we're in Africa. There's nowhere else we can be. There's nowhere else in our very origin that you can prohibit us from being African. You can't do that. Where else are are we supposed Mm. to be African? And so I remember one of the security guards holding me by my my collar and saying that what we're doing is unlawful and we must disperse and stop immediately. And now's not the time to address such issues. And I remember asking, then when is the right time to change? When is the right time? It's been 22 years. And you're saying to me that in, in more than two decades, there was never a right time. Then if not now, then when, when is the right time going to be three generations later after my generation and children are still dealing with the very same issues that I've confronted throughout my entire schooling career. Is that the right time then when you've, when you've abused even more black children that are yet to follow, is that then the right time? And, he didn't answer. And all he said was, we're going to count to three. And by three, you must disperse and immediately stop stop what you're doing. And he counted. And he said, he counted. to. He started with one, waited, two, waited. And he was like, we're demanding you to disperse. Because if you do not disperse, action is going to be taken against you. And we said, what is the action? And they then said to us, we're going to arrest you if you do not disperse. To me, you know, and I laughed because at the time I was just I was just like, what? I'm 13 and I'm being threatened with arrest. What? What? Right? And he mm-hmm. counted to three. Then he said, this is the last chance for you to all disperse. And we stood there silently. We stood there silently. And for us, that meant that we're defending our Blackness and there was no way we were going to. And so, and so then he proceeded to say, then we're going to arrest all of you you're all going to get arrested and at the time for me because there was this fire in me that I just can't even find the right (laughs) words to really describe I unplanned unknowingly like I I don't think I, I even planned that I was going to say this but then I went on to just I was like no then let it be us then. Let it be us then, because there's no way that this is business as usual. So in my mind, when I said that to myself, I just put my fists up in an X. And for me, that was defying them silently. And I went on to say, then you can arrest all of us. Take us all, all of us, arrest Mm -hmm. us. And I didn't know that me saying that would later... Lead to everyone also everyone resisting and and silently silently um, calmly defying that and everyone saying then arrest all of us take all of us and so and so that's when it that's when that that moment right there yeah. that was what was captured and um, yeah that iconic picture it went on it went on for about for about ten minutes. Going back and forth, and us not us not willing to back down. And um, for us, we said we're not backing down for for another twenty two years to come. And children are going to experience this. There's no ways this is for the girls that are going to walk these corridors after us, rightfully so, as they should. And so I remember after that we were forced to disperse, and then we were taken were taken into um, the main building, and we were. We were in a room. We're in a room with the two security guards that were heading up the high-risk team, and they basically intimidated us and said that we're going to face disciplinary action on Monday. And on Monday, we ought to be prepared for that. And after after us refusing our refusal to be held, essentially, um, essentially. Being held hostage with them because that was that was we 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 were in that room against our will and we were in that mm. room without without adult without adult representation on our side and we then said that okay you know and when we left and we all um, we all went parted our ways and now it's a Sunday we sat for some time and I think someone texted me and said what are we going to do, what are we going to do, this can't be the ending, right, Mm, mm. and we were like, this also can't be where it ends, we can't be, we can't be violated, violated, and then we speak up for ourselves, and then we're further violated more, you know, and Mm. so I remember saying that, listen, we live in the 21st century, there's one tool that we have, that will never fail us, will never forsake us. And that's social media. And um, social media has formed a very big part of my activism. Um, being a Gen Z activist, it's formed a very big part because it's a connecting tool to connect with the whole world, right? Mm. From where I am right now. And, and so um, I remember we then started... We then started the hashtag, hashtag stop racism at Pretoria High School for Girls. And we started this hashtag at 6 p.m. And the first thing we did was we put up footage of the arrest threats. And then we started a conversation amongst ourselves of tweeting about our experiences. And in about two hours, it became a Pretoria conversation where old girls from the school, as well as um, Former alum- alumni, pupils from other schools, and other pupils of other schools was all sharing a con a conversation around our experiences, right? And in about four hours, it became a Gauteng conversation. Mm. And then at about at about half past ten, it became a national conversation, and um, we were driving we are driving a conversation, which was something that was never never addressed twenty two mm. years. 22 years after negotiations and after democracy had been declared, it had never been addressed. And we started something that was never brought brought to the surface, right? And um, I remember the following morning, the following morning, it became a global conversation around around institutionalized racism in education. Mm -hmm. And um, then we had a petition. We started a petition that gained over 29,000 signatures which then um, led to the suspension of the code of conduct, as well as um, as well as led to an investigation, which led to a change in in the policy itself, and um, further, it also sparked it sparked something much more significant than us, which sparked the um, the the activism of other of other high school pupils whereby there were other protests in other schools that followed in San Sosi, mm. Lawson Brown, Pro-Arte, in other, many other schools, Crawford, Crawford, Lone Hill, there was a, a demonstration as well. And it sparked, it sparked, um it sparked this, this very, this, it sparked, it sparked something bigger than us, which was um young black people understanding that we have to, we belong in the spaces that we're in and in these spaces, in these spaces of education, it cannot be that we do not see ourselves reflected and our Mm. blackness is not included. And we turn our blackness and fight for its inclusion in these spaces. And that's, that was something bigger than us. And Mm. it was the beginning of the beginning of something much greater than us and something where there'd be no turning point and, it would just be a continuous ongoing, ongoing movement of youth, young black resistance. And yeah, yeah. And I think oh, wow. that um, it starts <clears> at <throat> something very big. And for me, that also became the foundation of my activism. Because yes. from that point on, I understood the power that young people had. And I understood that immediately, even before we drafted the petition, I understood that the very same day when I saw that young people collectively started a global conversation which brought the world to a standstill to speak about to speak about something that was deemed as uncomfortable and something that was never spoken about Mm. and um I remember everything that followed being the foundation of my activism because I then understood that I think that this is what this is what I was placed in my generation for and um I then also saw that change is possible and um, change is possible, not just on an institutional level, but on a global level. And I then, then began, I think that's, that's, yeah, that's when I knew that there was no turning point in, in my advocacy and my activism. And I then became a change maker and I was determined. And I said to myself that if there's anything I'm going to do is bring change in the world and, um, I'm committed to doing so. I'm committed to um, not just forming part of discussing discussing change and the idea of change, but I'm going to form part of propelling the country and the world in the direction of change. And that was just the beginning for me and um, was the foundation of everything that was yet to come. And um, for me, it went, change meant meant even internal change on Mm. an interpersonal and internal level because it's not enough that laws and policies change institutions are upheld by traditions and culture so it's not enough that laws just change people have to change and people are going to change through education and the only way to do that is when you change and decolonize education and Mm. for me that's when um, I became a firm advocate of decolonization as well, and um, it was the beginning of me um, me entering entering um, social justice activism, and from mm-hmm. that point on, I've made a commitment to myself that it's not just a fight for everyone else and my community, but. It's for me as well and it's for my existence as well right here as a Black girl in this world, right here, right now. It's for me as well. I'm not just fighting for um, everyone around me. I'm fighting for myself as a Black girl as well to exist. Mm. Mm. Wow. There's so much.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for sharing. Also, specifically for sharing um, the events that led to that as well as actually happened because <clears throat> and I and I was just watching some of your other interviews and you you mentioned before that it wasn't just a hair thing and everybody made it a, like made that event a hair thing so I'm so happy that you just you know you painted that context for us to, to say that it's such it's bigger than just hair you know it's institutionalized mm-hmm. like you were saying and also I I really appreciate you sharing that you were a shy child and now you are you are and now you you've you've gone you've gotten out of that shell. i wanted to ask you if there is like a young person listening to this today and they are they are shy they don't speak up they haven't found their voice yet um since you've been on that journey what
1: advice would you give them the advice i'd give them is that um you need to understand that your existence is deliberate and when you understand that your existence is deliberate Anything is possible, and you're able to walk in the magic that you should be walking in. And you need to understand that your existence and placement in the world and this generation is deliberate. And um, you need to exist deliberately in all of your magic.
0: Mm, I love that. That's absolutely beautiful. It's not by mistake that you're here in this moment right now, it's deliberate. Yes, that's beautiful. Um, another thing I wanted to just um, touch on was, I mean, it, 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 it can't be easy, right? What has been the hardest thing about being an activist? Um, not necessarily just your, your, that specific um, experience in 2016, but just what you go through. What has been the hardest part of just advocating for what you believe in and, you know, being an activist?
1: Mm, I see yes so you know I think the (gasps) hardest one of the one of the because it was never it's never been rosy right it's it's -hmm. it's never been rosy um equally um it's never been something I was going to give up on even though it wasn't rosy I think one of the hardest things that I've I've um, I've 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 navigated is um being being a black girl right number one Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um just being just being black and being a woman is a lot of people find it surprising but it, it it's very difficult because when you're with your male activist counterparts they're deemed as though their activism is more deliberate than yours and um they're they're seen as as um they're seen as leaders easily and they're seen as mm. as though um, they matter more and um, their voices are heard more, you know, and um, you could be in a space with them only and you would say something, but the minute a man says something that's exactly the same as what you said, um, he's praised. And, hey, yeah. and women activists are always painted as stubborn, hot-headed, hard-headed individuals yet men that possess the very same characteristics of being unspoken and being um, discerning and um, having having um, having that determination to not want to give up are painted as uh, are painted as 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 messiahs as heroic mm. and um, there are less less demeaning characteristics attached to them but when you're a woman you are, you're hard headed. You're stubborn. You're stubborn, and you're hot headed, and um, and so I think that that's been one of the one of the challenges. But um, also, I think that um, just beyond that, being this young, being this young is also has also been um, a bit of a challenge for me, given that um, in like with South Africa, for example. A lot of the other youth activists are people that um, that are like about ten years, seven, six years older than me because they form part of the season's full generation, and mm. so it's quite it's quite difficult being this young because at times your question, your presence is questioned, your um your voice is questioned as though does it even doesn't even matter what you have to say and you're constantly in a in a position of being patronized being questioned or people around it around you wanting to parent you right mm. as though these aren't the people that you should be working hand in hand with your to colleagues. bring change about you know and mm. then i think for me um just the personal challenge has been that um being so young and entering and entering um and entering the space so young, um, i faced sort of a bit of isolation where it's it's been quite a lonely, lonely path because it's like, I'm so young, right? And um, this isn't something that many of my peers around me are, are engaged in. And um, it does, in a sense, isolate you when you become very outspoken and you're painted as the outspoken one and you are the voice, essentially. And you're deemed as the voice. Because I mean, I always say to people that um, there's no person in this world that is vo- voiceless. People are systemically made to feel and believe that they're voiceless and they're silenced, but no one is voiceless. And so when you're painted like that, there's a very high expectation, but there's also um, a lot of isolation from everyone else.
0: Hmm. Um yeah, th- that that absolutely makes sense. And I'm glad you're mentioning these because, <clears throat> you know, we a lot of us are now doing um a lot of passion work, a lot of mission driven work. And I think it's important to just highlight that it's not easy, you know, and that people and young people especially really do understand what you're going into. Not that not to try and discourage anyone. It's just the reality of the world. And these are the things that hopefully will change over time you know as more and more people mm-hmm. get in, get involved in mission driven work and, and 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 activism actually specifically um you you also mentioned once in an in an interview that you did you spoke about are you like are you like what <laughs> your eyes <laughs> no you, you mentioned radical self-love being important this is in relation to your book that we'll talk about but just in relation to that i just want to know what does radical self love look like for you specifically
1: for me radical self love is existing existing unapologetically without allowing for the opinions the opinions of how i should exist as a black girl to define how i'm going to exist and shape how i show up and it's also it's also understanding understanding the power that lies in my being and understanding and understanding that I am more than enough and I'm worthy. I'm not just enough. I'm more than enough. And, um, and for me, it's, it's also very, it's a very deep reflection as well. And also, um, existing as who I am and loving what I'm taught and conditioned not to love like my hair. mm Hmm. Mm. And
0: since we're here now, can you tell us a little bit about your book? By the way, I one thing that I love and like, oh, my gosh, I'm obsessed about specifically with your book is the fact that you chose um, a, a, pretty much an all black team. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Right. Oh, that is yeah. brilliant. I love that. I'm also just like everything black. Yes.
1: <laughs> so can yeah. you tell us a little- <laughs> Yes, okay. that was very deliberate. And yeah. that's something that I do in all the majority of the work that I do, because I believe that I don't come as one, but I come as as who I am. And who I am is not just one, but who I am is as an African, I don't just come on my own. I mm-hmm. come with my community and everything and anything I do for the people must be done with the people. And so in everything and everything that I do, and I'm still going to do, best believe it is going to be black produced, black, like it's just going to be, you know, this is ours, you know. And so um, for me, it was very important that, because um, I'm writing a book dedicated to little black girls, that they see when they open up the book and they see the names there, that they see names of black women, and they know that we can come together and do something for ourselves mm. and something that is ours, because it's a, the book is not just for me, the book is dedicated to us. And so, it had to be that it was us that would contribute to it, right? In the in the publishing of it. And so that was a very deliberate decision. And um, even going forward in everything and anything that I am gonna do and what I wear, I wear black owned, I buy black owned, black, um, black-owned products from black-owned, mm. black-owned creators. And so it, it's very deliberate, you know, because mm. I believe in building. In building our own community, because if not us, then who? And Mm -hmm. so we need to bring forth our own and begin to to create and produce and make our own for our own community. And so Mm -hmm. my one mission with the book was to tell an African story about us for us and by us for the world as well. And so that's why I had to go with the with um being deliberate in getting a black publisher and a team of um a team of um black women that would um form part of of even the designing and the layout of my book mm. and so mm. that I can proudly say that the book is um the book was done by us as a community of black women for us yes I love that and I have
0: like two nieces right now they're both two years old and I cannot wait to just um, get them the get them the book and have them grow up in a world way because they both have natural hair and have them grow up in a world where they're literally going to page through a book where the
1: people in the book look like them that's for me and absolutely incredible yes yes and so the book was very deliberate it was very it was a very deliberate action mm. and it was influenced by number one my childhood growing mm. up with a firm love for reading and so I said that children children need to be taught to love books. And mm-hmm. that's what I want to do. I want to give a black girl child the same, passed on the same love I, I had and still have for reading and books and literature onto mm-hmm. her so that, um, so that she sees possibilities and also sees, um, sees possibilities that are going to propel her into telling her own narrative and shaping her own narrative. And so um and taking ownership of her own narrative and, equally to do that and to teach that love, they ought to see themselves, right? Mm. And so for children to to see themselves, it affirms their being and existence. And so um, growing up and loving reading and not being able to see books with, um, with people that look like me and not just people that look like me, but stories that are my reality as an African child, made me want to go and write a book that is relatable that is a representation of our beautiful reality because our reality isn't just pain and suffering Mm -hmm. we have so much beauty and um that should be shown and expressed you know Mm -hmm. and also I also wanted the message that was at the heart of the movement in 2016 to be documented as a permanent reference Mm -hmm. for um centuries to come for a black girl child to pick up a book and understand that we did something and um, what we did was never for just us
0: mm-hmm. that is absolutely beautiful I'm very happy that you actually did this and like you're saying documenting things because it just can't be a moment in time it should be mm-hmm. documented and live on so I'm I'm so happy. I'm so excited. I'm excited as if I'm that little girl, not growing, like reading it myself, you know, like it, 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 I'm specifically at a very, very, very young age, you know, so I'm very excited for this kind of work to be out there by a young black person such as yourself. It's absolutely brilliant. um So obviously you're studying now and you are writing more books and so yes. tell us, yes I as I read that you have like two books that you're
1: writing um yes I'm beginning with those and yeah they're gonna be out soon ah, sure, maybe another one in the following year <laughs> oh man all the best to that but I want to
0: specifically ask you so what what is your vision for your life what is your vision for Zuleika um you know Oh, <laughs> every time your eyes are open I'm like oh, what, I wonder what's going on in your mind but you know with you studying now with you writing um writing books and obviously with you having this passion for activism and just you existing in J as well as a young black girl who has you obviously so multifaceted it's not just your activism work that exists in you um mm-hmm. you know there's relationships there's all these kinds of things and by that I mean like friendships family all these things so What is your vision for future Zuleika?
1: My vision for myself is that, um, okay, I think we should put a time frame on it because it's very hard to just say vision without a time frame. I think maybe in the next 10 years, my vision for myself is that um, I've published more books, more books with one mission and mandate to take ownership of my narrative and to and to tell African stories and to tell our reality, to tell stories that affirm that affirm the power that exists in blackness and to um, write about Africa for the world, not have the world not have the world to define who we are. Mm-hmm. I see myself having published more books, and um, those would all be dedicated to us as a people, um, in terms of. Um, in terms of in terms of growing my 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 activism um i hope that in the next 10 years i've achieved i've achieved um bringing about bringing about enough change to ensure that children in the next 10 years are not having the same conversations that i had and Mm. that the implications we face now we no longer face then and i hope that um I hope that the the conditions of the country don't look exactly the same, or if not worse than what they are now. And so, and also, I hope by then to be an admitted advocate of the High Court. Hey, um, yes, put it up. <laughs> that has always been my childhood dream. I've, as I as a child, when I stuck to one thing, when they asked me when I was six, "What do you want to be?" Yeah. I said, "I want to be a lawyer." and not because of the profession, but because of what is entailed to it, to defend humanity and to be an an advocate of social justice, you know, and so to defend humanity and to fight for social justice for humanity. And um, I do hope to um, uh, also on a more personal level, I think that um, I... I want to still be the unapologetic person I am and carry that with me and carry that with me so that others around me are inspired to live in the same way. And those younger than me are inspired to live in an unapologetic, fierce light. And I hope that um, the light is even brighter than what it is now. And so publishing, entering the legal fraternity, more change-making, growing myself personally, aiming to be happy. And I think that far too many times we uh, never talk, we talk, when we talk about black girls, black women were so influenced to fight for a life and fight for a life that, um, and I'm not saying that this is wrong. Yes, fight for that life, you know, Mm -hmm. fight Mm. for the life to ensure that, um, to ensure that your, your, your circumstances change. But equally, Equally, I think that we hardly we hardly whenever we um, we speak to black girls about what they envision for their future. Yes, it's always going to be about the career, right? And it's always about it's always about um about um the growing the career, and it's always about um, everything externally and. Externality that involves the world and giving themselves to the world but i think that as well what should be included is giving back to yourself as lo- as much as you should give you should receive and i think mm. for me as a feminist that's very important that you need to give and receive give give to the world and receive back for yourself and pour into yourself and so i aim to be happy as well and at peace mm, you
0: can't pour from from an empty cup that's what yeah. they always mm, mm. and lastly <clears throat> this is my favorite question that i love to ask on the podcast um it comes from the quote that i love that says be who you needed when you were younger that's my favorite quote and it's what i tried to do <laughs> um so now that we've spoken about future Zuleika, tell me if you could go back in time and pick any age it could be you when you were you know Still in primary school, still the shy young girl. It could be you when you were starting um or like starting to get involved in the movement and, and activism. At any age, mm-hmm. if you could go back, it could be you yesterday. You were younger yesterday. Yeah. Um <laughs> yeah, if you could go back in time and talk to your younger self, what would you say to her?
1: I think that um my younger self is definitely number one, proud of the person I've 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 prospered and blossomed into. And um, what I would go back and say to my younger self is that um, there's always, there is always something to say and, um, and it's, it's valid. It's valid. And I think what I would also say is that your, your being here and your existence is worthy. And I would tell my younger self not to be afraid, not to be afraid of, my of my cap- my capabilities, mm. and so that's what I would tell my younger self because I think my younger self was very afraid.
0: Mm. That's beautiful. I don't want to like add anything on. I think that's a beautiful ending to this wonderful interview. And I know I said lastly, but lastly, lastly, how can people follow your journey, um, get in touch with you, um, buy your book, of course. Um, let us know your contact details.
1: Okay, so. Um, I have Instagram at Zuleika Patel underscore Z U L A I K H A, And also um, how you can purchase the book is it's available at CNA Nationwide, exclusive books nationwide, as well as Ethony Kids.
0: Thank you so much. This has been amazing.